We gather here this morning because of Him. Now, in some ways, we gather here on this Sunday morning because every Sunday morning we gather and we think, okay, we're in the routine, we're doing our thing, you've got the change of the season, it's Mother's Day, Mother's Day morning, Sunday, we're going to be here. But ultimately, the only reason we're gathering here is because of Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. If you think about it, there'd be no other reason for us actually to be here on a perfectly good Sunday morning. Every Sunday, it's because we worship Him and because He has changed our lives. He has changed the whole history of the human race by providing us a Savior. We've been traveling through the Gospel of John, and I'm, I'm grateful that we're landing on John chapter 4 on Mother's Day. One of the major contributions that Christianity has made to the world is its elevation of the status of women. Now, you may not believe that if you listen to all the voices today. They would look at the church and Christianity as repressive, but that's a revisionist history. Christianity elevated women. It was true even in a Jewish community, despite the fact that the Old Testament foundation of why women are to be treated with honor and value is that God made both male and female in His image. And then there's those unforgettable words in the book of Wisdom, the book of Proverbs 31, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. In other words, it's passing, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. So we should make much of women. We should make much of those that have contributed significantly to our lives particularly our mothers, our wives that serve as not just wives but mothers. The New Testament apostles saw women as co-laborers in the gospel, calling on husbands to treat their wives with understanding and honor as heirs together of the grace of life and to sacrifice themselves in love for their wives even as Christ gave Himself up for His church. The apostles' view of how to treat women did not come from their culture. Roman or Jewish, but from Jesus. Women supported Christ's ministry and traveled with Him and His apostles in their itinerant ministry. He treated them with profound respect and insight. And our text this morning is one of the best known and most loved passages, revealing Jesus' heart for women and their needs, particularly those damaged by false teaching and sin's scourge. We look this morning at the woman at the well. The opening nine verses of John 4 pull back the curtain on the world in which Jesus lived and ministered. They reveal the kinds of barriers and burdens that made life hard for those in broken situations like this Samaritan woman. Follow with me as I read those first nine verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, 
he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So let's stop for a moment to take in what this passage reveals about the first century world and its brokenness. Doing so will help us understand better the rescue operation that Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus and his disciples have been ministering in Judea, but he decides to head to Galilee, and for a good reason. The Pharisees have begun to take note of the growing popularity of Jesus, greater even than that of John the Baptist. You remember John had called on everyone to repent, Jews as well as Gentiles. He had the audacity to call even Pharisees and Sadducees to repent or face the wrath to come, calling them a brood of vipers. The Pharisees were the respected Bible teachers of the day, and the Sadducees ran the temple worship. Together they were among the most respected and powerful leaders of the Jewish nation. In those days, Gentile proselytes were baptized into the Jewish religion, But it was outrageous that Jews, especially the religious and political elite, would be called to a baptism of repentance as well. So John was a problem for them. But Jesus was proving to be an even greater threat to their imagined superiority over others. Later, he would confront them about their rejection of John the Baptist and declare that prostitutes and tax collectors would make it into heaven before they did because these notorious sinners repented at John's preaching, and the Pharisees did not. The Pharisees, therefore, considered anyone that threatened their culture of superiority and control a threat to be neutralized. So Jesus' popularity was a clear and present danger. In chapter 5, they begin persecuting Jesus for His violation of their man-made Sabbath rules, and they start seeking to kill him. According to God's plan and timetable, the cross will come. It will appear that they have won, but it is not the time yet. So Jesus withdraws from Judea to travel back to Galilee, and the text reads literally that it was necessary for him to go through the region of Samaria on his way to Galilee. Now that, if you knew the times, that would be arresting. It was necessary. It was the shortest route to Galilee, but but Jews would normally go around Samaria to keep from having to associate with any Samaritans. We're not told why it was necessary for Jesus to go this route, but the implication was that it was necessary to fulfill His saving mission to Samaritans, not just Jews. It's high noon, and Jesus is tired So he stops at Jacob's well. Centuries before, Jacob dug a well there, running 100 feet straight down to a spring. 
Townspeople typically wouldn't come to draw water in the heat of the day, but here comes this woman at high noon. She's alone, and Jesus is also alone because his disciples have gone into town to buy food. Unfazed by the possible awkwardness of the situation, Jesus asked her for a drink. Simple enough, but with that basic request, he pushes through multiple barriers, and she voices the chief one. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. For 700 years, Jews and Samaritans have been at odds, and for good reason. They were the result of Assyrians intermarrying with Israelites from the northern tribes who were left in the land at the time of the Assyrian captivity. Further, the Samaritans had developed their own religion, modified from the Pentateuch and rejecting the later books. They had opposed the rebuilding of the Jewish temple when the Jews returned from their 70-year exile in Babylon. Who can forget Sambiah and Balat and Tobiah? And they had ended up building their own temple at the base of Mount Gerizim. So to the faithful Jew, the Samaritans had violated the covenant of God, both by their intermarriage with pagans and by their corrupted religion. Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. We typically don't love the people that hate us. When Jesus' enemies wanted to insult him, they would call him a Samaritan. But his ethnic identity and hers, it should have barred all interaction between them. But her need is deeper than her Samaritan ethnicity, and his power to meet that need is far greater than his identity as a Jew. Now, consider what these nine verses reveal about the world in which this encounter takes place. It is a world where what passed as biblical religion had degenerated into self-righteous sectarianism that used religion to achieve power and wealth, the practitioners of which thought themselves holy because they maintained their system of external codes and ceremonies developed over the years. They saw themselves superior to those uneducated in their system and basked in the accolades of those who revered them. But their inner life was in fact corrupt to the core full of merciless greed, prideful contempt, and even murderous hatred. So externalism, sectarianism, tribalism, polarization, prejudice, mistreatment, all these were commonplace in this world. It was a world in which Jesus was not welcomed, and someone like this woman would never find God, not with that kind of religion nor could anyone who actually had any thirst for inner cleansing or healing from brokenness or loving interaction with one's neighbors or an authentic connection with God himself who sees us as we really are. The fact that Jesus was a Jew was only one of the many barriers to this woman ever finding the door to life. It struck me as I thought about this passage that not much has changed. We still live in a world full of externalism, look good on the outside, sectarianism, often degenerating even to tribalism, 
polarization, even the algorithms on the internet will force us those directions, prejudice, mistreatment, not just in the pagan world, but in the very places people would hope to find true religion. No wonder they have such difficulty in finding their way to God. So in this kind of world, with these kinds of barriers, how will Jesus meet this woman's need? And she has needs, and she becomes more and more aware of these needs. And the first thing that we see in verses 10 through 15 is that she is thirsty. She is thirsty for eternal life. Thirsty for eternal life. Jesus answers her after her, her understandable question, why are you even talking to me? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Remember, a hundred feet. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So look at how Jesus is leading her. If you knew, and you don't yet, if you knew the gift of God, and as he talks, we realize that this gift that he's talking about is, is living water that quenches your thirst forever because it will plant divine life in you that will well up into eternal life. Jesus uses the same kind of language in John chapter 7 when he says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This eternal life springing up in a person comes from being born again. You remember he used that language with Nicodemus. Regeneration, life from God produced by the Holy Spirit. This life of God in the soul of man accounts for a transformation that occurs in the life of every true believer in Jesus. And, and once that regeneration has happened, once that life is given, it never goes away. It keeps producing fruit. It keeps flowing. It changes people from the inside out. There is a thirst for the life we lost in the Garden of Eden, a life connected to God, a life empowered by God, a deep satisfaction not only with the life we have, but with the persons we are. 
And as a human race, there's this deep, usually unspoken sorrow we bear that try as we might, this life eludes us. We're not only unhappy, I mean, we have moments of pleasure and joy and happiness, but so much of life, it's like we can't quite get there. And, and even the things we enjoy last but for a moment. And then, and then beyond that, we can say, oh, well, the problem's with the world. And then we look inside and we say, no, the problem's with me too. Like, I never can quite be and do enough. I, I want something more. I, I sense that I'm made for something more. And no matter how hard I try, how many services I go to, how much I read my Bible, how many things I do, I'm still not there. This is the life that God promises. This is the gift from God. We read about it in the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, this is so valuable, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't attain it on your own. It has to be given to you. In verse 22 and verse 17, he references again the spirit and the bride, bride referring to the church, say, come, and let one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you knew the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God, and, and if you knew who it is that's saying to you, give me the drink. In other words, the gift is desirable, but the gift comes only from a person who can give me the gift. Who can give this gift of God? Only Jesus, the God-man, the mediator between God and man. Now, it's going to take her a while to realize who Jesus is. At first, all she sees is a Jew. And then when he starts talking about this water and he has nothing to draw water with, he says, well, are you greater than our father Jacob? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Much greater. You would ask him. That's how you receive the gift. He's the only one who can give it. And did you notice it says, and he will give it to you. You have but to ask. And he will give it to you. He will give it to you. He's not a reluctant giver. You have to trust him to give it to you. So what kind of life do you really desire? And who do you believe Jesus is? So this makes us step back and say, well, what, what are you most thirsty for? You see, the, the Pharisees, they, they thirsted for importance, for self-righteousness, for power, we learn in the story for, for more money and things. And that was enough for them. That was enough for most of them. 
and, and others thirst for other kinds of things, but, but are you thirsty for this life? What, if anything, in this world do you thirst for more than a life from God that comes from Jesus? I think and someone has said it not exactly this way. I'm, it's a rough paraphrase, but, but we tend to be satisfied with too little. Like if we have our house and we have our car that runs and we have our job and we have our kids and we have our grandkids and we have our bank account and we have our retirement account, we're good with that. What else could I want? Well, well the problem is you're only going to have that for a season. I mean, really short season, like for a vapor in the wind and, it, and suddenly it's gone and you're dead, then what? Who cares? I mean, a hundred years from now, nobody's even going to remember your name. I mean, life has to be more than that. You know, when we go from season to season, we say, well, when I'm a kid, I can't wait till I'm a teenager. And then when we're a teenager, I can't wait till, you know, I'm in college. And then, you know, I can't wait till I can move out of the house and start my own life. And can't wait till I get married. Can't wait till I have kids. Can't wait to have grandkids. Can't wait till I get the better job. Well, okay, so you keep, like you're always looking for the next thing, but, but then what? You know, it's kind of like a squirrel looking for the next nut. And, and it's like, this is all life is? I'm just searching out for the next nut? Life has to be more than that. We were created for more than that. And, and this is what Jesus is tapping into. The only reason Jesus can give this gift goes back to why we lack eternal life in the first place. Why is there this deep thirst? Well, our sin has broken the fellowship with God. And our sin has broken us. And someone has to take care of our sin or there's, there's no way back to God. There's no escape from death into life. And, and that leads us to the second kind of thirst we see in this woman is as soon as it's clear that the woman actually does want this gift from God, Jesus zeroes in on the sinful pattern that has so marred her life. She is thirsty for deep cleansing. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know, man-made religion paints a veneer of righteousness over lives that are corrupt and what Jesus offers cleanses and roots out the sin that has, has driven deep into our lives and, and poisons our souls. When Jesus tells the woman to call her husband, he's pulling back the cover on her failure and her pain. She gives a truthful answer, but it's an evasive one, I have no husband. But then he lets her know that he is fully aware of what's been going on in her life. She's had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. What is supposed to satisfy the human need for lifelong companionship has turned out to be a repeated disaster for her. Think how others must have viewed her, and imagine what she thought of herself. 
clearly starving for companionship, but never able to find what works. A slave to her desires and outcast in her community. Likely the reason she's coming in the heat of the day to draw water when nobody else would be there. The directness of Jesus regarding your sinful lifestyle pattern would have turned others away. We almost expect her to wheel around and leave full of embarrassment and anger. But that is not her response. Later, she will report that Jesus had full knowledge of her, sin and all, and pointed that as proof that he's the promised Messiah, the Savior King. Here is someone who knows her better than anyone else, all the bad things about her even, and nonetheless has entered into conversation with her and proceeds to teach her truth from God and promises to give her life from God. You know, one of the reasons that we hide our sin from others is we're afraid what they will think of us and what they'll do to us if they know. And here Jesus shows this woman, I know your sin completely. I know your life completely. I know all the inner workings of it. I know where you are now, and I know where you've been. And I'm still here. I've known it all along, and I'm talking to you. And I'm offering you life. There's something about that that is a great comfort to a sinner's heart. It is certainly not the religion of the Pharisees. This is the religion of Jesus. He sees her as a real person with real needs and offers to meet those real needs with real solutions. It's easy to let the sins of others keep us from engaging with them at all. That's the Pharisaic approach. And it rescues nobody. It presumes oneself to be free from sin. So it's self-deceptive at the core. How many religious people would think this woman was beyond hope too long a history of bad decisions and sinful failures. It's also easy to avoid the topic of sin altogether so that we don't offend. That's another common approach today. But that pretends that sin, with all its rebellion against God and all its harm toward human beings, including the sinner himself or herself, doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter that you're bleeding to death. It doesn't really matter that you've got this toxin in your blood that's destroying you. Oh, it doesn't really matter. Let's not talk about it. That's not loving at all. We try to pass it off as loving, but it's not loving at all. It's selfish, and there's a degree of cowardice to it because we find it too inconvenient and too much trouble to try to rescue people that are on a self-destructive course. But if we love them, if we love them, we, we want to help them in some way. So we don't want to stick our head in the sand. We don't want to pretend that God will not judge sin at all. 
if we believe that, it guts the gospel of its very meaning. If sin doesn't matter, why did Christ have to die? Why do we even need rescue if sin doesn't matter? If all the world needs now is love, sweet love, and love means I just don't deal with sin at all, then the gospel makes no sense at all. This woman would not have been satisfied with Jesus just glossing over her sin because her sin was ever present with her. Her sin had ruined her life and and she could find no way out. Jesus acknowledges that and loves her. So what sins... Are you willing to tolerate in your own life rather than coming to Jesus to be cleansed? It's not like when you confess it, you're, you're cluing him in to what's happening. He already knows. Whom do you avoid because of the sins in their life? And then who sins do you ignore because you're afraid of disrupting your relationship? Now, to be sure, there are ways of dealing with the sins of others and ways of not dealing with them. There's an appropriate way to show kindness even when you're confronting sin. But if you were to follow Jesus' example, how would you approach persons you know are caught in sin? This passage is just so instructive about how to interact with people that are struggling and and feel cut off from life because of it. Third, we see this woman is thirsty for true worship. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So her understanding of who Jesus is, is growing. He's not just a Jew. He is greater than Jacob, and now he's a prophet. A prophet hears from God and speaks to people. And Jesus' deep knowledge of her tells her he knows the way God knows her. But her roots are Samaritan. And the big divide between Jews and Samaritans had to do with how to approach God. Since this man she's met has just demonstrated himself to be a prophet, perhaps he can settle the worship wars of her own times. You know, should you raise your hands or leave them at your side? Should you clap? Should you use only a certain kind of music? No, worship wars, they're old as the hills. Her Samaritan fathers worship God at Mount Gerizim, but the Jews worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? Will Jesus side with his own people, the Jews, or with the Samaritans? Who's right? There are so many religions, so many denominations, so many church splits, so much wrangling over the practice of religion. Would Jesus be an independent Baptist or Southern Baptist? 
Would he be a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Methodist? And which branch of those? Or what about even Roman Catholic? Or maybe, since the Koran teaches Jesus is a sinless prophet from God, maybe he's okay with Muslim religion too. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. The Samaritans have based their religion on ignorance. They accepted only the Pentateuch, not the rest of the Old Testament. And the salvation God has promised was revealed through the Jews, through the scriptures God gave to them. Holy men of old spoke as they were born along and wrote as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. So he's not saying all religions are the same. But even for the Jews, the the place of worship was not the most important thing. In a few decades, there will be no temple. What then? Will contact with God be lost? Is true worship dependent on a place? I mean, can we worship some other place than in this particular room? How could true worship be dependent on a place? It's just not possible. In the days of the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle was moved from place to place. And and before there was a tabernacle, there was worship. John 4, 21, we read, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, referring to the Samaritans. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. God is not bound to a place. He's spirit. And the worship of him is not mere ritual. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, aligned with the truth of Scripture and at the level of spirit realities. No external pretense. Authentic, heartfelt, honest worship. The Father. And what comforting words for this relationship-starved woman. The Father is seeking such persons to worship Him. He is seeking her. Those who are thirsty for true worship. The real you has to come to know the real God with nothing between. No charade, no faking it. This is the kind of worship that most of the Pharisees knew nothing about. They studied the Scriptures, but they were all about looking good, not being good. And the Sadducees were worse off yet. They did not study the Scriptures because they didn't believe them. They were rich and powerful, but ignorant of the Scriptures and of the power of God. All their temple worship with all the sacrifices that God Himself had prescribed centuries before was like a production or a play devoid of truth and reality. But it made good money, and it gave them power and influence. So when are you most likely to slip into going through the motions of worship that is not in spirit and truth? 
You know, I was thinking even this morning, and you know, I'm sure you're like me. My, you know, my biorhythms, they, they vary. And some Sunday mornings, I feel dead as a doormat. Nothing moves me. But that bothers me. I thirst for more, and so do you, and so do you. We want worship that's in spirit and in truth. So how does knowing that God the Father is seeking true worshipers shape your attitude toward worship? I mean, think about that. Think God welcomes you to true worship. God is seeking you to bring you into true worship. In other words, it's not so much about your finding him. He's already seeking you. And what, if anything, is standing in the way of your engaging in authentic worship, of giving God the worth that he deserves, of loving him with the love that he deserves? What, what is competing for your affection? What, what could you strip away that would let you just come face to face with God? And then finally, we see that this woman is thirsty for the promised Messiah. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And you realize that Messiah is the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word, and Christ is the New Testament word. It's a translation. It means the anointed one. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this may be maybe the most surprising thing in the whole passage so far. Who would have ever thought that this woman would have cared a thing about the Messiah? Yet she shows more understanding of why the promised Messiah was coming than the Jewish religious leaders of the day. She's not looking for political deliverance. She's looking for reconciliation with God. She knows a prophet when she meets one, and she, she wants to hear from him. She's not looking for just someone who's going to reinforce what she already believes and what she already practices. She longs for true worship, and she's already convinced that the Messiah when he comes, will answer her questions about these important matters. When he comes. In other words, she believes God's promises about the coming of the Messiah. He will tell us all things. Her heart is open to whatever he will teach. So for the first time, Jesus openly reveals that he is this promised Messiah. I, the one speaking to you, am. Ego me. I am that I am. You are looking at the Messiah when you look at me. You have been talking with him. The wait is over. If you knew who asked you a drink, you would ask him for living water. The who is Messiah. The who is Jesus. Greater than Jacob, more than a prophet, son of God and son of man. The real you must meet the real Messiah.
Ask, and he will give you eternal life. That is, if you're thirsty for it. So in what ways are your expectations aligned with God's messianic promises? Look at all the promises he makes about what the Messiah will do. Are those things that you're thirsty for? And in what ways do you show by your daily life that you thirst for Jesus the Messiah to teach you and to lead you in all things? Are you thirsty Thirsty for eternal life, thirsty for deep cleansing, thirsty for true worship, thirsty for the promised Messiah. That leaves us with one more question. How does Jesus the Messiah quench this thirst? The text gives us a clue. Did you notice that the first one to ask for a drink was Jesus? Jesus was thirsty and weary. How could the Messiah, the Son of God, be thirsty and weary? Same reason he would be hated, arrested, condemned, tortured, and crucified. He was to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him And with his stripes, we are healed. He is so intent on quenching your thirst that he literally died to give it to you and rose again. Look at the career of Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the words of Jesus. Look at the person of Jesus, and you will see the one who gives the water of life freely. So come to Jesus and quench your thirst. Writer of Hebrews puts it this way, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thirsty. Let's pray. God, we get distracted with all the necessities of life, like drawing water, giving and receiving in marriage, trying to hold down a job, trying to meet our obligations. And Lord, in all these distractions and all this frenetic activity, we sometimes fail to stop and realize how thirsty we are, how much we need the life only you can give, how badly we want to be thoroughly cleansed from our sin, how much we want to engage in authentic, genuine, 
heart-to-heart worship with the God of our life. How much we long to follow Jesus and to hear from him. God, many here in this room have trusted in Jesus. They, they have found him, the answer to their thirst, and look forward to that thirst being completely quenched when he finishes what he has begun in them. But Lord, there are those, likely many, here this day who have yet, who have yet to come to Jesus with their thirst. Part of the reason is they're satisfied with far less than what he offers. But God, I pray for those who want more, much more. Oh, God, make them thirsty for you and help them find who Jesus is. And having thirsted for life and Realize who Jesus is, Lord, draw them to ask him for this great gift. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory we pray.